Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, welcome back. You know, after a weekend, you know, in the past, I might be here Monday morning looking for what I want to talk about, maybe a couple different topics, you know, with two days of the markets mostly being, you know, closed for the weekend and and some time to think, some some time for, for different events to to materialize, you know, sometimes, sometimes not, I'd have material to work with. Nowadays, with this coronavirus really in the forefront of, of everybody's minds and, and their lives, it's it's really weeding out what I want to and what I don't want to discuss. Um, so certainly today, as usual, it's going to be a wide-ranging podcast covering everything from the numbers what we can and can't glean from them, the exponential growth of the coronavirus, which continues to this day in terms of both cases and, unfortunately, deaths. Uh, some update on the uh, on the politics of it. And, and you guys know I'm not going to get too deep into the politics, but, but specifically the aid bill that's coming through and, and why it may not come through as quickly as some people would like. Uh, politicians that have been infected by the coronavirus. I want to talk about the financial side of things, the Federal Reserve and 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 some of their really crazy, I, I would argue, irresponsible actions that they have taken recently, uh, as recently as just the last 24 hours, um, as well as you know some other discussion. I mean, this is wide ranging, but I have a list here of certain things I want to discuss, and and I think we'll start off with. The numbers. Now, again, I'm recording this Monday morning. These numbers are not going to be accurate as to when you're listening to this because, well, by the time I publish it, these numbers will be different. And, and of course, these numbers are, are just that. They're just numbers. They're, in many ways, a function of how much countries are testing for it. In fact, uh, over on, on Twitter, I'd, I'd seen a, a really good uh, tweet. This is from a Mac Ro- Max Roser, um, show, showing a really good correlation between the uh, total confirmed cases of COVID nineteen per million people and the GDP per capita. Really great correlation. The higher the GDP is, the more cases of COVID nineteen. And is that because richer people are richer people are more susceptible to it? No, not at all. I mean, that would that'd be silly. Really what it is, because if you look deeper into these graphs, it's a function of testing. There's also a pretty decent correlation between tests per million people and uh, GDP per capita. Wealthier countries test more. And as an aside, if you're looking at this, if you, if you fit a line to this chart, you would find that uh, a certain country, the United States, is actually well below that line. Still not testing enough relative to our GDP, relative to what we should be doing. But, but anyways, um, that's really all these numbers are. You know, some people such as Scott Gottlieb, who you know, when this is all said and done, will be on my list of people that really knocked it out of the park in terms of sounding the alarm on this in a reasonable, but also um, sensible manner. Uh, somebody that 
definitely sounded the alarm. Didn't say this was just a flu, but also was very accurate about different matters. Brought attention to many different things, including testing. And he does to this day. And one thing he's been pointing out is that a goal of what we should be doing with testing is looking for a lower and lower positive rate. Meaning of all the people you test, which generally are symptomatic or have a history of being ex exposed to people that are symptomatic or have COVID-19 or positive test, that positive percentage should go down because that would indicate that you're casting a wider net uh, to people that are less and less likely to be positive. If all we're testing is people that are symptomatic, that have positive CTs, that have been exposed to people with COVID-19, then man, that's we're going to have a pretty high positive rate, but we're also not casting a very wide net. So looking at these numbers, as I said, they continue their exponential growth. Um, Italy really leading the way as China sort of got this under control. I mean, I, I'm still not buying these numbers. In fact, I saw as I was looking through Trump's Twitter feed to, to find a specific tweet that I'll be talking about later today. I, I, I don't just search through his feed on a regular basis. You know, something he had retweeted did point out that uh, I think it was him that had retweeted it. Did point out that you know the, the Chinese government still says only you know what a couple hundred people died at Tiananmen Square. Why would we believe the numbers were put they're putting out now? Um, so with those aside, Italy continues to get absolutely walloped by this uh, COVID nineteen with officially nearly six thousand cases and over five thousand deaths. In fact, their their rate of you know the, the case fatality rate if you're going to go by those numbers, is approaching 10%. Now, is it actually 10%? No, I don't think so. Uh, they're just overwhelmed, and they can't test everyone that's asymptomatic or low symptom. I mean, but their death is death rate's very high. I mean, how high? I mean, people ask, well, you know, this, this is just like the flu, right? Um, and there's actually a lot of, of reason to believe that the death rate coming out of many countries, including Italy, including the United States, is actually lower than one should be. I should say not the death rate, but the total number of deaths. And, and the reason being for that is, is that, well, they're not always being tallied in the best manner, especially early on, right? But even past that, a lot of these are, you know, I've, I've seen um, some, some evidence. Again, some of this is anecdotal. Some of this is firsthand. This isn't uh, firsthand from somebody else, not firsthand from me, you know, because the media is not always going to report on this type of stuff, right? Uh, for all those people are always saying, you know, commenting, this guy must be drinking the media's Kool-Aid. I rarely am, am looking at what you call the media for for my sources. I, I, I don't know. So, I, I mean, I'm not sitting at home watching CNN and Fox News all day or something like that. Uh, I, I don't have time for that. Um but what I'm talking about here is what you'd call underreporting deaths. And, and in fact, uh, we, we have a lot of evidence out of this from places like Italy, for example. Uh, one uh, city in, per, in particular, Bergamo, uh, a city, in fact, uh, earlier in the last week, there's, there's that video of those military trucks allegedly carrying bodies down the streets of, of Bergamo. Um, a whole a whole line of them. Um, it, it's that city, anyways. Um, there's a according to this Bellagius Serva, whatever name doesn't matter from Twitter. Bellagius Srinivasan uh, Srinivasan um, quote: "Death tolls in Italy may be actually understated due to lack of testing. There's now an apparent spike in all-cause mortality with Bergamo deaths quadrupling versus the same week last year." 
basically saying that uh, here's this is a quote from from actually where he got this. Uh, provincial mayors are sounding an alarm. The virus-related toll fails to reflect a spike in deaths in the general population among those who have not been tested. Last week alone, 400 people died in Bergamo and 12 neighboring towns, four times the number who died the same week the previous year. According to Bergamo's mayor's office, only 91 of those had tested positive for the virus. Now, to some extent, that would be expected in the sense that you're going to have some people that need medical care, can't get it, uh, you know, something along those lines. But it's certainly, I think, too high to, to chalk it up to just that. I think there's a lot of people dying, and it's just not being tested enough. And, and is that is it being tested, uh, not tested out of some sense of, of uh, attempt to, to not <laughs> scare people, to, to hide information? Maybe, but not necessarily. I think it can simply be the fact that well, they only have so many tests. Let's test the living, or let's test... Um, you know, with what tests we have, let's test people that are unsure if they have COVID-19. Granted, there's value to knowing if a a dead person has COVID-19 or not because, well, who's been exposed to them? But still, underreporting deaths is a thing in Italy. I think it's a thing around the world. And and unlike in the case of China, who I think probably did it intentionally, it's not necessarily intentional in all these other places or some sort of grand conspiracy from the top. It can be at the hospital level. It can be at the state or, or city or county level uh, not reporting those deaths or assigning them to some other cause, right? This, this man had cardiovascular disease and he died from a cardiovascular event in the midst of a COVID-19 infection. Let's put it down as, you know, cardiac arrest. He died from V-fib, right? Uh, which in reality is, is just the, uh, it's like when, when um, you know, somebody dies from, from various forms of, of dementia or something, you know, it's, it's usually some other cause that, that, that kills them, right? In many cases, something like pneumonia, right? Uh, not necessarily the dementia itself or, or actual changes to the brain, right? Um, at least that's my understanding of it. So, so these deaths, the cases, really across the board, we'd be very skeptical of them. But what we can do is, is do two things. First of all, look at it from almost a common sense perspective. Look at what's happening in countries like Italy, like Spain, uh, France, even here in the United States, places like the New, like New York, uh, uh, New Orleans, uh, Los, uh, Los Angeles, Louisiana, Washington. You know, look at those. Look at the the um, examples of nursing homes that have been absolutely uh, um, walloped by by this coronavirus in terms of the individuals that have been sent to the hospital or have wound up dead because of it. Uh, look at the hospitals that are totally overwhelmed. I mean, you can look at that from a common sense perspective and say, this is different. This is huge. This is a big deal. The other thing, though, this this talk of just not having good data, you know, what is the true death rate? What is the true asymptomatic rate? Um, we've actually had that information for a, a while. We can still look back at the Diamond Princess as a really good example, really good case study of of what that truly is as well as, you know, to some extent, South Korea. South Korea, because they have this pretty well under control, but they also have a huge sample of people to draw from. In fact, um, as of today, South Korea has reported all of 64 new cases, seven new deaths, which as a, as a whole comes up to 8,961 cases, 111 deaths, giving them a case fatality rate of 1.24%. 
Now, I think in that we can we can make a, an educated guess and say they didn't catch all the cases initially or now. Although they did a ton of testing and they they probably caught a lot of them. Right? Not everyone, but but again, probably quite a few of them because they have so little community spread now, at least officially, right? Uh, according to the testing they're doing now, which I assume is still very, um, very widespread. They've, so what that means is they somehow missed like 100 people in their initial sweep. By now, those 100 people would have been tested and found or, or would have spread it to you know, a couple other a couple hundred other people, right? And and their cases would again be exploding. They probably missed far fewer um, cases, asymptomatic or otherwise, early on or when they were doing this widespread testing. Um, additionally, they, as other countries, probably missed a couple deaths here or there. It's hard to say, right? Uh, and I think reasonably, the, the other thing about South Korea is that I don't think at any point was their healthcare system just totally overwhelmed by ICU patients because they got this under control so quickly. So what can we garner from that? In a country like South Korea, they did a lot of testing. We have a huge sample size of cases and of deaths. And they came out with a a case fatality rate of 1.24%, probably a little lower than that in reality. Because they again they probably missed more cases than they did deaths as a you know in terms of a ratio, right? Leading me to believe that maybe it's you know this case fatality rate in a in a country like South Korea that has good healthcare systems and and was not generally overwhelmed in terms of their critical care beds, a, a death rate of one percent. Now, as time goes on, that might change. It will change, right? But but we might see that tick up slightly as more and more of those that were dying die, and and fewer and fewer people get infected, right? And their data could be totally off, but I, I, I trust South Korea's data maybe the most out of any country, you know, with the exception maybe like Hong Kong and Singapore. They've done a pretty good job as well. Of course, the other example that we have is the Diamond Princess, which was, uh, a, a, I don't know what you want to call it, a Petri dish? or I mean, so, so the problem with the Diamond Princess is that you do have a population set that is skewed somewhat to the older side. Uh, and there's other things about it that just make it maybe less than perfect. I'm sure from a from an epidemiological or from a uh, from a statistics perspective, right? I'm sure that people that have degrees in those fields would say, yeah, there's some other problems here that you're missing, Matt. And and I'm sure that there are. But anyways, the thing with the Diamond Princess is that, to my knowledge, basically everyone was tested on board for COVID-19. It took a while. I I think Japan in particular was just surprised by by the resources it takes to test hundreds and hundreds of people, but they were tested. And, and we came out with a total of 712 cases. Now, again, is that true? Was there people that they missed? Was there false negatives? Was there? It's so hard to say. But it's pretty darn good data because it was a largely a closed environment. And from those 712, the slightly skewed older population, you had eight deaths. Case fatality rate of 1.12%. But again, the thing that we have to understand is that, yes, that was skewed to an older population. However, it was also at a time in which Japan's healthcare system, and to my knowledge, it's still the case today, was not just totally overwhelmed. They didn't have a shortage of vents. They didn't have a shortage of, of beds. 
right? They, they easily found beds for everybody that needed it. And it wasn't 712. It's far fewer than that, right? Because of, of uh, the fact that, that a lot of people that get it don't need to be hospitalized, right? So again, looking at a CFR of maybe in the ballpark of 1%, maybe with a healthier, younger population than the Diamond Princess, and with a little bit better testing than, or, or more widespread testing than South Korea, despite the fact that they did a ton of testing, maybe between 0.5 and 1%. And I know what some people will be saying, like that's nowhere near what the WHO was saying, 3.4%. Not even, you know, quoted that number occasionally. Knowing that it's not totally accurate, we will never have an accurate number, right? Um, I think the point of that, I, I don't know why the WHO put that out, um, as far as me repeating it, we don't always know that number perfectly. And 3.4% and in a city like Wuhan, I think could have been accurate. Why? Like, why would it have been so high in Wuhan? Or or I should say it's probably even higher in Wuhan in China. Their healthcare systems was, were overwhelmed. I mean, let's do it. Again, for, for those that haven't heard this thought experiment that I've you know, kind of brought up a couple times here, and I don't know if the thought experiment is the right term for it, but if you have 1,000 people that are infected, right? Let's say 200... Um, you know, the, the, the general statistic is 20% severe enough to be hospitalized, 80% mild. Now, mild is anywhere from basically asymptomatic, maybe a light cough to like walking pneumonia, right? But let's say 80-20 split, okay? You have 200 people that need to end up in the hospital, right? That's 200 beds plus, you know, a, what, a quarter of those that end up in the hospital need like an ICU bed, a critical care bed, right? So 200 in the hospital, 50 in a bed. And if this healthcare system's not overwhelmed, we should expect that from, from 1,000, what's 1%? I mean, basically 10 people would die. So one in five of those that end up on a critical care bed, need a ventilator, something along those lines, would, would die, 10 of those people. But what happens if this happens in a system where they only have room for 100 people and 10, or, sorry, uh, 100 beds and, and 25, you know, ventilators? Well, all of a sudden, you know, in, in a perfect world, the, the 100 most severe people would be hospitalized. The 25 most severe cases would be put on a ventilator. Right, but now you have 25 people that previously would have required a ventilator or some other type of. I use that, but there's plenty of other things that a, an ICU unit unit can can provide um, that are no longer getting those services. And in, in theory, they would probably have died in the previous scenario had they not received those. So they probably would this time around as well. And those hundred that were hospitalized, but now are not hospitalized in this scenario because the the system can't handle it, they may deteriorate further, they may end up in a much more severe condition, and, and a large amount of those 100 may die, right? Uh, just across the board. And, and then, of course, there's the other parts of it in terms of the, the workers in the healthcare system. When it's overwhelmed, you have a larger amount that are going to uh, end up sick. You have a, a decreased quality of care when you have fewer doctors and nurses to go around, et cetera, et cetera. So, so anyways, that's why I'm coming to that conclusion right now of a case fatality rate of somewhere between one-half and one percent, depending on the country, but in a, in a good healthcare system. And, and to put that in perspective, for the United States, that's still huge, right? Let's say we just say, screw it, 
with this whole flat and the curve piece, you know, 320, I think it's more than that, but 320 million uh, times, you know, 0 0.01, that's over 3 million deaths, right? If it's a half percentage point, you're at 1.6 million. But again, of course, if, if everybody in the U.S. got infected or half, I mean, not everyone probably would, but half, right? So, so with 1%, you'd, you'd have a 1.6 million people dying. It'd be much, much higher than that because the healthcare system would be just totally and wholly overwhelmed. So that's my conclusion, that, that in a normal functioning healthcare system, CFR is between 0.5 and 1%, case fatality rate. But that jumps whenever you have a healthcare system that is overwhelmed, when you have an elderly population, uh, et cetera, right? Uh, those things all get worse or make it worse, make it look worse. So this isn't just the flu. 0.5 to 1% is still much, much more deadly than the flu. And it's going to much more easily overwhelm the healthcare system. And that's, that's really what's coming around uh, the corner. Now, again, on the political side, moving on from just the numbers, I know I'm, I'm how, you know, 19 minutes into this. Jeez, this is maybe going to be a 40 minute podcast. We'll see. Um, politicians uh, testing positive. And again, this is sort of what some people pointed out. I think it was Andy Slavitt, some other people of Twitter and wherever, wherever else have pointed out, you know, if, if you want to get a COVID-19 test, take up, you know, basketball and become a professional basketball player. Or, or politics, become a senator, right? Because you have a greater chance of being tested in that scenario than you do uh, right now. It's, it's sad. It's, it's a sad truth. You know, the other way would be to uh, uh, um, <laughs> sneeze in somebody, somebody's face that is rich and famous. But, but again, politicians have started to test positive. Rand Paul uh, tested positive. Uh, in fact, there's some evidence to suggest that between when he got his test and, and when it came back positive, he's doing a fair bit of socializing, going to the gym. I think the pool, he had a GOP luncheon earlier in the week. And I'm like, why are they still having luncheons in Congress? But but whatever, that happened. Um, a lot of people closer and closer to, to the president are showing up potentially sick. Mike Pence and I think his wife are, are taking the test now. I think Rand Paul, I think it was him that had a lot of, a fair bit of uh, um, exposure to, to uh, Steve Mnuchin. Um, you know, that crazy conspiracy theory that I think I threw out there a number of weeks ago about this Mick Mulvaney, former, what, chief of staff, I think it was, for, for the White House, who was suddenly um, <laughs> reassigned to, like, the ambassador to Northern Ireland or Ireland. I forget which one of the two. Uh, he test, he ended up testing positive a while back. And, and I said back then, maybe it's because he was the guy that at, what, CPAC was, was spreading it around. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. There's a favorite gap there, so that's just purely speculation. But I found it interesting that that crazy conspiracy theory actually could potentially have had some truth to it. Uh, maybe one day we'll find out. Uh, a fair number of GOP senators actually are, are in quarantine right now, meaning they can't vote, uh, which, which is having some serious implications on the, the aid bill coming through Congress. Um, you know, before I get to the aid bill, before I get to the Fed and the markets, there's one other thing I want to talk about. If you guys can tell, I'm making a shift towards towards the economy and the financial side of things, as I, as I like to, because I think the, the impact has been huge lately. It was actually...
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A tweet sent out by Trump, and uh, I'll find this for you. I screenshotted it because I thought it was interesting, um, concerning maybe. All caps, this was at you know 10.50 in the evening central time yesterday. Quote, we cannot let the cure be worse than the problem itself. At the end of the 15-day period, we'll make a decision as to which way we want to go. Now, my first question is, what is the 15-day period? Now, obviously, a 15-day period of something, quarantine or social distancing or something. I, my point being that, you know, the marketing team, whatever, the media team from the White House, didn't do a good job of, of publicizing what this 15-day period was. So I looked around, and sure enough, there was some talk of this 15-day period of basically isolation, call it what you want, stay the F at home, as, as the Twitter tag has, uh, hashtag has, has called it, or, or whatever, but, but this 15-day period, I don't know when it started, though. <laughs> That's the problem here. I looked around, and, and there's references to this from, from several, several days ago, um, suggesting that we're many days into this 15-day period. And I really, truly hope that when this 15-day period is over, whenever that is, um, that we, we don't just call it quits on this. I mean, you have to understand that that the cost of something like that would be would would be stupendous. It's stupendous in terms of the amount of deaths that that would cause. If we just say at the end of this fifteen day period, nah, um, let's call it quits on this whole social distancing. That's just not long enough. I mean, first of all, there's been a lot of people that haven't been social distancing, right? Look at the beaches down in Florida for spring break, right? We all saw that. Um, you know, there's even in New York City, one of the, the hot spots for this outbreak, plenty of, of a lack of social distancing, right? Flights and domestic flights are still widespread across the country, right? I mean, even though over the last week, last couple of days, social distancing has not necessarily been the name of the game. I mean, yes, schools have closed, universities have closed, workplaces have, have shut down, and that's made a dent. But but really what we have to understand here is, is let's say, you know, currently we, we have... 35 plus thousand positive cases here in the United States, right? And realistically, we're probably well over 100,000 actual cases. Plus, you know, another 150, 200,000 people that have been exposed to it and have not yet, not yet tested positive, right? Hundreds of thousands. And so what you would need to do to, to truly shut this down would be what's, you know, the term that's kind of coined these days is the Wuhan-style lockdown, complete lockdown. You might not be able to leave your house to get groceries. Maybe, I don't know. But complete lockdown, right? And if you, you don't follow, you get arrested. Now, I'm not advocating for that. I'm just saying, if we had that, what you would end up with is a scenario where we could stamp this out, stomp this out, whatever the term is, in, in a period of a couple of weeks. If people were willing to make that sacrifice, a couple of weeks. 
because ultimately you have a hundred thousand and if those hundred thousand we're, we're just gonna go off that number um, plus another hundred thousand that are, are already in incubation period and we have to understand that the incubation period for this can last up to two weeks some evidence has suggested it could last even longer than that not 15 days right that's not gonna be enough because then once that incubation period is over they're symptomatic for a couple days at least and then they're going to spread it to somebody else potentially that is then going to be in the incubation phase for a very long time, right? I mean, it's just 15 days just isn't long enough, especially since social distancing hasn't been adequate enough. Um, it hasn't flattened the curve thus far. Yeah, I think so. I, I don't have data to back that up. I, some people do maybe have some data. But, but I think we can say that, yeah, closing schools, workplaces and stuff, that's going to likely flatten the curve to some extent. But has it been enough? Ultimately, what you need to do is that 200,000 cases right now with an R naught of, you know, all else being equal, let's say two and a half, three, whatever, without social distancing, that's going to spread like wildfire. And it's going to be in the millions before we know it. With social distancing, let's say that's down to an R naught of, of one and a half, meaning one person on average spreads it to only one and a half other people. Well, guess what? You're still in some sort of an, uh, an exponential growth, albeit at a slower rate of exponential growth, but still exponential, 1.5 to 1.5 to 1. You still end up with, with very high numbers because to some extent you started with high numbers. And then minute you take off those restrictions on, in terms of social distancing, that r not's going to move back up again and you're going to have a huge exponential growth. Again, r not back in the twos or threes, whatever the, the true number is. What you need to do is you need to take that R naught below 1 to, to 0.8, to 0.6, meaning one person spreads it to, on average, less than one person. And then you see that number come down. But it doesn't go, it doesn't go away overnight. In a perfect world, we could say that 100, 200,000 people, whatever, we could find a way to make sure they don't spread it to anyone. Period. End of story. And we could be done with this in a couple of weeks. But they will whether it be healthcare workers because they end up in the hospital, friends and families because, hey, wh where else are you going to live? Uh, there's actually some potential answers to that out there, but where are you going to live? You know, uh, but, but those infections will continue, right? A spouse will pick it up at the hospital, share it with their spouse at home or with their child or something. And then that person has to go through their incubation and their symptomatic phase and try not spread it along the way between, you know, wh whenever their contagious period is both asymptomatic and symptomatic period, that it, that would likely be contagious, right? And and if they don't spread it to anyone, great. That chain is over, at least on, on that side. But but they very well might spread it to somebody else, and it goes on and on, right? Uh, and that's why this is going to be such a long process. Are, are, are we going to continue with this quarantine until we get to zero cases? No. But 100,000 or 200,000 is way too many to say that we can call it quits, and have some any reasonable expectation of life returning to normal. The minute you open up schools again, and I get it, you know, healthcare workers, a lot of them are moms and dads that, that right now might have to stay at home with kids. But but uh, the, the, the moment you open up schools again, open up workplaces again, you know, eventually, you know, start up sporting events, public events, you know, that are not going to move back up again, and, and you're going to be in the same boat, Right. Do you need to get rid of every case? Probably not. But you need to, first of all, be able to get that case down to a manageable number, maybe four, three-digit number. I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is. And then you need to have a super good testing system in place 
to test everybody that's potentially in contact with those thousands or hundreds of people or tens of people, whatever it ends up being, right? But we're still many, 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 many weeks away from that. 15 days is just not long enough. And I hope, I hope that that's not the case when this is all said and done. And if it is, that, that if the president says, well, 15 days is enough, let's get, let's get going, that states are basically like, no way, right? No way. We're, we're staying shut down. Schools are going to stay closed. Universities are going to stay closed. Private businesses decide, no, we're going to stay closed, regardless of what our state or federal government or city says, to, to again, flatten this curve, stamp this out. It's, it's a long haul. But again, is the economic cost worth it? I don't know. It's a huge cost. And, but but you know, I should say, I don't know. Yeah, I think it is. I, I know it is because we're talking life and death here. Right. Uh, if you're if you're worried about your market, if you're worried about your 401k, your retirement, if you're worried that the financial system is going to fall apart, you got to understand that what's going on right now in the market, the, the bond market, the stock market elsewhere um, is, is not just a function of this virus. It's a function of a massive financial bubble that was blown for many, many, many years. And as recently as 24 hours ago, less than 24 hours ago has had some more air pumped into to this quickly deflating bubble, right? This is a massive bubble in the stock market, the bond market, the real estate market, and elsewhere that was fueled by cheap money, low interest rates, money printing, debt, credit growth. And this bubble popping, it's, it's popping because of the coronavirus to some extent, right? That's the needle. But, but the needle didn't cause the bubble to exist, the needle didn't blow up the bubble. The needle knows nothing of the bubble. The needle is simply you know, flying around in space and, and has found this bubble and has now popped it, put, put a big hole in its side. So let's move to that side as we enter our, what, 31st, 32nd minute, 30th minute, whatever, this podcast. Um, as I said before, um, the, on the political Washington side of things, the, the aid bill, at least for my latest update, and I can double-check this real quick, has not moved through Congress yet fully. Um, there's still uh, they're still working on getting it through. Basically, the Democrats blocked one of these stimulus bills, which included, if I, if I remember correctly, the, the whole checks to every American part and, and massive loans to businesses, um, all of that was blocked, largely because of Rand Paul and other senators that can't vote. I shouldn't laugh about it. I, it's 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 not humorous that Rand Paul is is sick or that these individuals are quarantined. If there's any kind of humor in it, it's more so just like, like we're we're a first world country. Look at what technology is today, and yet you can't vote to some extent in special circumstances, maybe somewhat remotely. Right? This is a huge threat to our. Uh, our government, right? Um, and, and it's and it's just a little bit. I don't know if irony is the right word, but it's it's just like once you know it, you know, coronavirus just screwing up another thing. You know, the the voting on this bill. Um, but but again, that's in the works, and it's probably I think by the end of the week going to get passed. But that's not necessarily helping the markets right now. In fact, as I speak, the Dow Jones is down over 300 points. It's rallying to some extent, 
from from its low, but still negative on the day. Eh, it might end po- positive, depending on what happens with this aid bill. There's the other side of this, though, as well. Now, as I said before, this is a bubble, massive bubble. Needle popped it. It's not the needle's fault. This is the bubble's fault and, and those that blew up the bubble for years and years. And there's a certain entity that starts with an F and ends with an ED that has been really doing their very best over the last, I don't know, six plus months to keep this bubble inflated well before this coronavirus thing. Last 10 years, honestly, 15 years, 20. Pick a, pick a time period. The Fed has been active in trying to keep this bubble afloat or bubble inflated. Uh, keep credit growth positive um, to, to somehow prevent this whole thing from falling apart. And, and of course just as the weekend kind of came to the close and, and we kind of move into Monday, the Fed announced yet another program to, to keep this afloat um, in, the, in the form of QE, quantitative easing, purchasing $125 billion worth of securities every month. No, just kidding. Every month would be not nearly enough. They're already doing that, uh, what, 60 or $80 billion a month, plus probably plenty more that they've started. I'm losing track over the last couple weeks. No, $125 billion a day in securities, right? $75 billion worth of treasuries, uh, $50 billion worth of, uh, from Zero Hedges, BMS, probably MBS, mortgage-backed securities, although they also mentioned, I think, later down, commercial mortgage-backed securities as well, Right. So they're moved into the commercial realm. Um, in addition to that, they're also planning on buying uh, corporate debt in a basically unprecedented new. This actually caused the market to, to rally quite a bit. Now, again, it's negative now on Monday morning. Could change. Um, and again, it shows that I think the market is just waiting for the, the U.S. government to figure out their side of things in terms of, of passing this bill. But... Uh, this is a quote from Zero Hedge. The Fed unveiled an unprecedented expansion to its mandate, announcing open-ended QE, which also gave it the mandate to buy corporate bonds in the primary and secondary market to unclog the frozen corporate bond market as we are just uh, as we just one step away from a full Fed nationalization of the market. The only thing left, as Zero Hedge points out again, only Fed stock purchases remain now. That's the only thing that the Fed hasn't started doing yet, buying stocks, buying equities. Which I'm sure, like with with this form of QE, bonds, corporate bonds, mortgage-backed securities, commercial mortgage-backed securities, uh, repo market interventions, providing liquidity to the money markets, to to you know everybody that needs that liquidity needs that money. The Fed is is the lender of last resort. Um, most people will be cheering that on, right? We're in a crisis. They will say. Uh, Nobody could have seen this coming. They will say, I need to get back to work. Um, I need to uh, you know, feed my family, keep my house. Uh, what else are you going to hear? I need to retire soon, right? I need the stock market to go back up again, right? All those things people will be saying. And I get it. This is a tough time. In, now, thus far, the duration of this hurt, economically speaking, fairly short, most people have not been out of work very long. But I get the anxiety. I get the fear about this. But I think what you have to understand is, is two things. First of all, these massive government bailouts from the Fed and from the U.S. government, they primarily benefit not you but the wealthy. 
right? The wealthy being the people that hold the vast majority of the stock market, the executives and stockholders, et cetera, of these massive companies that are going to be asking for and probably receiving a bailout, the massive banks that have assisted and blown up this massive bubble, taken on far too much risk through lending, uh, because again, of course, they know that the Fed is always the lender of last resort, right? Um, the hedge funds that have taken on a huge amount of risk by through leverage and other means. I mean, that's ultimately who the Fed and the government is going to be helping through this bailout, through QE, through lower interest rates, all of that. They're going to benefit the most. Now, are you going to get the benefit as well? Well, short term, maybe you'll, you'll get that check in the mail. So will I. I'll probably cash it. I'm not saying I won't. Uh, that'd be silly. Uh, will the uh, will we really benefit from what's going on with this aid package and from the, the Fed blowing up the stock market more or, or trying to inflate this bubble? Maybe over the short term, right? Maybe your business that you work for or own can stay in business for a little while longer. Can make it through this coronavirus madness. Um, markets may not totally freeze up. The financial system may, this month or the, over the next couple months, may not totally collapse, right? I suspect there's at least one bank out there that's on the brink of total collapse, major bank. And maybe that won't collapse right away. Maybe eventually, maybe not. We'll see. The Fed has been throwing everything but the kitchen sink, kitchen sink being buying stocks at this right now, which would suggest that there's some serious concerns out there in the financial world. There's probably a bank that is about to go under. Domestic here in the United States, maybe in Europe, I don't know. And of course, all of a sudden we're worried about a very different contagion as well. Um, part of the reason that you know many people, including myself, have been encouraging people to, hey, think about taking some cash out of the bank, Right. But, but those are, I mean, those are, that's ultimately what's going to happen from this. But, but the side effect of all this, um, this meaning huge amounts of money printing to, to buy bonds, potentially stocks, mortgage-backed securities, commercial mortgage-backed securities, provide liquidity to the repo market, the money market funds, and other elements of the financial system, as well as a huge amount of debt accumulation by the government to, to stimulate the economy, et cetera, et cetera, um, that will ultimately, a huge amount of debt that's ultimately going to be bought up by the Fed, monetization of debt, i.e. printing money to, to fund the U.S. government. The, the side effect of that is going to be a complete and total destruction, destruction of, of the U.S. dollar, and thus the financial system. And, and I say that in very, with very high conviction, that that's ultimately what's going to happen because of this. Now, is it going to be during the course of this coronavirus business? Maybe, maybe not. We'll see how long this lasts. But complete and total destruction of the dollar. You know, as, as Neil Kashkari said yesterday, this is the, uh, what, the, the president of the, the Minneapolis Fed, uh, just the, the, the dovish of, of all the doves on, on the board right now. Neil Kashkari um, talking about uh, this this topic, talking about you know the what can the central bank do to uh, to kind of stave off this total collapse. I want to find this quote here for you. Um, here we go from Zero Edge. When asked if the Fed will quote literally print money, Kashkari admits. That's literally what Congress has told us to do. That's the authority they have given us to print money and provide liquidity into the financial system. We create it electronically, and we can also print it with the Treasury Department so you can get money out of your ATMs. 
Houston asked about the bond market stress. People are shunning U.S. Treasury bonds, which are always thought to be the safest possible investment, the host says, very matter-of-factly. Kashkar responds, keep in mind, Treasury bond prices are still very high relative to history. They're just not quite as high as they were a couple weeks ago, so they're still viewed as a very safe investment. But this fear of where the virus is going to, um, da, 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 da. I want to find one specific quote in here. Um, here we go. found it. The host says, uh, okay, going on here. Can you characterize everything the Fed has done this past week as essentially flooding the system with money? The host is asking. To which Kashkari responds simply, yes. The host says, and there's no end to your ability to do that. Kashkari here. There's no end to our ability to do that. We're far, he later added, we're far from out of ammunition. Your ATM is safe. Your banks are safe. There's an infinite amount of cash at the Federal Reserve. <laughs> I mean, you can't make this stuff up. He's right. That's why we've been so worried about this power in the first place. An infinite amount of cash at the Federal Reserve? Well, yeah, when you can make it out of thin air, it is basically infinite. But what happens when you try and, and stretch out the amount of money in the system to get closer and closer to that infinite number, which is silly. I mean, infinite's not a... You can't get any... I don't know. Can you get any closer to infinite? But but what happens when all of a sudden you're printing more and more and more and more money to, to provide liquidity for banks, for the financial system, for money markets, for the bond market, for the stock market, for the corporate bond market, for the commercial bond or commercial mortgage, uh, commercial property market... Uh, Etc. 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 What what ultimately is the um, side effect of that? Well, it's devaluation of the currency. It's inflation, right? I mean, for all this talk about the current economic, I mean, some people are saying this economic downturn is hurting people. Some people even go so so far as to say it's going to people are going to die because of this economic downturn. Therefore, we should be doing it, right? Therefore, we should be. Um, doing our very best to keep things, uh, to, to stop the social distancing, to, to get everything up and running again. Uh, who cares? People die from the virus. They're old anyways. We need to keep the economy going. It's, it's a silly argument. But, but yeah, people might die from, from this economic slowdown. I don't know. I mean, maybe I mean, on the margins. I mean, right now, again, the duration has not been crazy long right now. I mean, it, the majority, maybe all of the deaths, due to the current economic downturn, would probably be, unfortunately, um, traders, hedge fund managers, etc., that have decided to uh, commit suicide because of the losses in the markets. I, don't, I haven't had any reports of that thus far. May or may not be out there, though. But on the broader scale, yeah, economic downturns hurt people. People starve because of economic downturns. Um, people get worse medical care. I mean, there's all sorts of things that you can you can link with with a poor economic system. Again, is that the fault of the virus? No, though. No, it's it's not really. It's yes. I mean, there's a slowdown from it, but the popping of the bubble that's that's a product of of who has blown up the bubble, not the needle itself. But additionally, the the cost of what the Fed and the federal government are doing right now in the United States. And by the way, this is absolutely true for most other countries around the world. Definitely true for, for Europe. I'm sure the Bank of England and, and the UK, Canada, probably Australia. I'm not up to date on all their individual practices. But the side effects from all of that is almost certainly going to be deadly. It's, it's going to... Inflation, hyperinflation, 
basically a destruction death of the dollar, that is extremely deadly. Maybe not more deadly than the coronavirus. I, mean, we, I don't know. It's hard to say. But, but that is extremely damaging to a society. Standard of living, livings plummet in that type of a scenario. It, it is not a pretty outcome. Look at places like Venezuela, right? Is U.S. heading the way of Venezuela? I don't know. I mean, to some extent, it's probably apples and oranges. Their economy, their society, prior to their hyperinflationary downturn, and, and currently, vastly different from the United States. But but I think we would be it'd be far too, too foolish or prideful to say that that can never happen to us. That hyperinflation, high inflation, uh, an economic collapse because of that could never happen to us here in the United States because, you know, insert here, because... Donald Trump is our president because we have the, uh, the, the international reserve currency, you know, de facto reserve currency of the world, because we're the United States baby, because uh, whatever, we're exceptional. No, I mean, all those things go out the window. I mean, you can't just say those things and expect that to somehow defy some, some you know, rules of economics and rules of how these types of things work. You can't print money indefinitely without end without some major consequence of it. And the Fed is already seeing, we're all seeing that consequence right now in this bubble that has been blown up. And, and we're going to continue to see the consequences of that bubble trying to deflate while the Fed simultaneously tries to blow more air into this bubble. Um, that in and of itself, I think, is going to be extremely damaging. And then when it's all said and done, if the Fed can somehow patch that hole and try and keep this bubble going, it's, it's going to require, I mean, the thing you have to understand here is everything the Fed is doing right now they're going to keep everything they're adding to their balance sheet. They're going to keep on their balance sheet once this is all said and done. There's no normalization ever of rates, ever, of the balance sheet from the Fed. Yeah, I shouldn't say that. I mean, rates, potentially, in a very high inflationary environment, the Fed could, could start raising rates. But, but even then, it's not really normalizing because we're, going to, we're, we're talking normalization relative to Inflation, not just relative to what we think is normalization, you know, 4%. And it's all relative to inflation. So even then, that, that's never going to happen. In the last couple of weeks, I think we have to understand that, yes, this virus is, as I've said in the past, many, many weeks ago, maybe one of the defining events of our generation. But you also have to understand that a couple of weeks ago, the Fed took one step or, or many, many, many steps closer to the edge of monetary oblivion, the death of the dollar. As always, thank you from the bottom of my heart for tuning into today's podcast, almost 15 minutes. Thanks for tuning in and God bless.